0: Listening to episode 61 of the Enneagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile, the Enneagram Godmother. We're going to go ahead and stick with that. Today's guest is the author of Eat Cake, Be Brave, and you may have seen her on the new USA Network reality show, The Radkeys. It's Enneagram 7 Melissa Radke. She and Suzanne talk about body image and confidence, they talk about grieving and aging, as well as faith and fertility. The plug for today, what are the four mantras? Show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and don't get attached to the results. Join Suzanne Saturday, October 9th in Dallas, Texas, when she will talk about each mantra, what they mean, how can we best apply them to our relationships at home, at work, and in our communities and daily lives. she'll also teach about the areas each anagram number may struggle with and provide helpful tools to promote growth and transformation. So that is the four mantras, relationships, and the Enneagram, Saturday, October 9th, Dallas, Texas, and the cost is only $40 for an all-day Suzanne Stabile event. What a steal. So hop on over to lifeinthetrinityministry.com and register today.
1: Reaching into my freezer for frozen waffles for my kids, which is just like a mean, cruel joke, you know, because they're like, well, see, if you made them by hand, it wouldn't have happened. Well, that's
2: very interesting that you're telling that story because one of the stories that I tell when my ego is really strong and I can stand it is about uh, one of the first times that my oldest spent the night away from home. I think she was maybe in the third grade and she called me the next morning and she said, mom, guess what? And I said, what? And she said, you can make pancakes from scratch. <laughs>
1: no you can't that's devil talk that's just yeah. magic what do you, believe yeah. that?
2: <laughs> you know I bought them in a three-pack in a box Pillsbury at Sam's and my right. kids batter poured into a pan and my response was you can never spend the night there again that's exactly th- those
1: hey those aren't our people that's what we say yeah. those are not yeah. our <laughs> people <laughs> that's great well,
2: um, let me just start us off by saying, I'm a little bit sad that I haven't known you till now, because it seems like we think a lot alike and could perhaps get in some trouble together.
1: I would agree, and I'm sorry that I've not met you until now either. But I have a feeling this is going to turn into a beautiful relationship. I think it is. Whether just the might. world is ready for it or not, <laughs> yeah, and
2: I think they're not.
1: First, just tell everybody.
2: Um, five things you want people to know before I start asking you
1: questions. But here's what's interesting as a social media person. I don't know that there's much people don't know about me, but so I suppose you kind of want me to go maybe a little bit, a little bit deeper than that. Right. Yeah. What if they sound all kind of (laughs) braggy? That's okay. I'm going to ask you some hard questions. So set the table ever how you want to. Um, I'm a great Southern cook. Cool. I'm not a good baker. Can't bake a thing. Don't want to bring a cake to your party, but I can bring a casserole that will make you slap your mama. That's probably inappropriate, but it's true. Um, Number two, I like TV too much. I like it a lot. What TV? The trashier, the better. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The more shallow it is, the happier I am. I like all kinds of television and I'm probably, I grew up on TV. I'm an eighties kid. I grew up on it and I like it too much. So, um, number three, (laughs) um, I'm a person of great faith. I have great faith in the things of God. I have great faith in my husband. I have great faith in my family. I think that I'm, um, so that's how I would characterize myself. I'm someone of great faith in people, you know? Um, number four, I am very sarcastic. It's my love language. I speak with it. If I call you an idiot, that is the sa- that is the same as saying I love you, you're my best friend. I a lot of times people will say, "Well, I don't know how to take you." And I don't get that because if I pick on you or tease you, if I if I laugh at your divorce, <laughs> it means I love you. Like that's just my language. That's how I relate. And you um, are such a
2: 7
0: I love that one. I think only sevens create new love languages.
2: There you go. So,
0: <laughs> That's very true. I'll tell you cuz I've done that also. I'm like this is this is my love language and what was uh for want explaining to ones that um
2: Yeah, one one woman told me that she had to explain to her husband that criticism is not her husband's a one. And that criticism is not her love language.
1: language. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I would agree. I'd create my own love language and then I want everybody to understand it and be a part of it. And Mm -hmm. I'm fine with that. And then I think my number five is that I am a little bit of a dis, uh, what, what is the word? I think everybody has a hidden agenda. I think there's oh. always a hidden agenda with people. And I, I, so I question that a lot. So once you're in my circle, you are in like Flint, you're good to go. But it takes a little bit. And that's something that I find getting increasingly worse as I get older. I don't know what that is. So there's a little bit of me that always has to suss people out. I got to feel, you know, I got to read them and get to know them. So there, there you go. There are my five. All right. Well, uh one of them I want to
2: respond to with if you ever hear the hear me teach an introductory workshop or hear the recording of that, I don't bake either. I like to cook, but I don't like to bake. Mm-hmm. Um I also am a person of great faith and I have a lot of faith in my husband and the people around me and our life together. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that you and I um are going to find ourselves in one another in ways I didn't expect till I was looking at you. You said that you turned 41, and the three words that I noted were brave and bolder and freer, and that you decided that rejection wouldn't stop you and that careless words wouldn't stunt you. I could have said the same words at 38.
1: Really? Okay. Yeah.
2: So talk to me about turning 41 and why at that point and what helped you turn that corner?
1: Well, one of the things um, that I heard a lot when I was growing up was this particular phrase and it was, you're a lot, Melissa, you're a lot. I would hear it from friends if we got into arguments and we would have to have discussions and we would have to, you know, come to come to uh, terms with everything or whatever. They, they, it would always get brought up, well, Melissa, it's just hard with you because you're just a lot. I would hear it in my family. I would hear it in my mother. Melissa, you need to calm down. You're being a lot right now. I would hear that a lot, no pun intended. <laughs> and so I grew up feeling like I was too much for any room. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean that like in a positive thing, like I'm just too much to handle. i It was actually kind of became a negative for me. So I always felt like I was having to tone down these things that God had put in me and could, were not toneable. <laughs> like, I couldn't wow. tone them. In. I could curb them. I could be more respectful. I could listen instead of constantly speaking. I could, I could work on those things. I could work on my manners and my etiquette and being more respectful to authority, I guess. But as far as me, why was I always too much? And honestly, I wish that I had come to this revelation at 38. Hell, I wish I'd come to it at 16, but I didn't. So at when I turned 40, there's supposed to be this big change, you're, you're, this life change. Mm-hmm. And it didn't necessarily happen like everybody else. I still felt too much. I still felt not quite accepted. And finally at 41, I was just like, screw this. I don't want to live like this anymore. If I'm too much, you know, there's like a saying, there's a meme. I don't know where it came from. And it it traveled around. I saw it on Facebook or something. If people tell you you're too much, those are not your people. No truer Uh thing has ever been spoken about me. And I Mm -hmm. just made the decision at 41. I may be too much for some. That's okay. They're not my people. This is just who I am. And so I didn't want to live re- restrained anymore. Right. And so I made a decision. I felt this, this shift, this changing. I had felt it coming for a while. I didn't want to, I didn't want to live labeled. I didn't want to live as too much. I, that's, that's not the only thing I heard. I mean, I heard, I didn't just hear you're a lot. I literally lived in Nashville for 16 years and had people tell me, you're too big. I'm a plus size woman. Living in a, too, Mrs. you know, me I had to tell me you're too big, you're too much, you're too loud. And I just decided at 41 years of age, I'm going to live the last half of my life as full as I want to live it. And as big as I want to live it and as loud and as plus size, you know? So did you, um, was there an event that precipitated
2: that or? Did you just one day say, I'm done with this?
1: No, there wasn't an event that came before that um, declaration. There was, there was a longing. There was a shifting. There was a shaking. There was a something in my spirit was about to bust open. But there wasn't an event. But the night that I turned 41, and I wrote about this in my book, the night that I turned 41 was really significant for me because it was just such a normal night. Like I made a roast. My parents popped over for dinner. I, they were unexpected. My kids were fighting at the table. It What should have been this, you know, birth, you know, I'm all as a seven. I'm all about the birthdays. Right. I like the birthday celebrations to begin on Sunday evening and end on, you know, seven days later. But it wasn't. It was just a normal night. And I had even gone to the mall and bought myself my own cake. And here was this night, this regular run-of-the-mill night. But when I leaned over the cake to blow out my candles, I noticed that my children were talking about make a wish, make a wish, do this, do this. And I thought, oh, heck, I'll just thrill them and make a wish. You know, wishes, let's be honest, adults don't make wishes. You know what I'm saying? Like the last wish I made, I wish that my boobs would stop growing and yeah. I so um, it just doesn't happen, but I just thought I would do it for kicks, and I made a wish that night to for the for for my forty first year for one solid year for 12 months, I would live free and be just be me I would just live brave, I would be courageous, I would be too much for people. who cares mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. honestly, walking in that confidence changed my life forever. that year changed my life forever.
2: I don't want to change anything you're saying, but I want to understand it on a different level. So was it acceptance? Somehow in that evening, looking around at the reality of your life, do you think you accepted it in a way that Meant you weren't going to try to be somebody else, you know what I'm saying? I'm asking if there was more energy in I'm going to be me, or if there was more energy in I'm not going to keep trying to be somebody else.
1: Oh, um, geez, Louise, I don't know. I think there was more energy in I'm going to be me. Yeah, I'm going to stick with that. There was more energy in that, and here's why there wasn't a lot of energy in. I'm going to quit being someone else simply because I was never able to do that very well. Mm -hmm. I was never able to, I think that's why I felt like such a freaking failure because the truth, truth of the matter is a lot of people can put on masks and wear armor that doesn't fit and put on shoes that don't fit and they walk and they live their life like that. And I never could. And so I was just always, I felt unsuccessful and I, you know, I'm like, Everybody's faking it till they make it and I can't even do that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it was about I'm gonna stop being someone else. I don't really think it was. I think it was I'm just gonna start being okay with being me. There you I go I had me for a while. Now I just want to be okay with it. Yeah.
2: I had a similar journey in some ways. Um mine was kind of I was okay for a big part of my life. And then I was a foreign, you know, I was accepted and, and fit fit the mold until I was a junior in high school. And as a foreign exchange student, I was abused. And then I, a, a long journey happened after that away from myself, right? Away from who I was. And I um, I keep wondering what the switch was where I recognize that I too was God's beloved and that I'm, I'm good. I'm good as me and I'm better as me than I am at trying to be somebody else, but I'm a two on the Enneagram. So, you know, my motivation is I want everybody to want me and I want everybody to love me and all that, which is different from your motivation of just wanting people around you who are going to take care of your needs and, Love you, that group of people. I wanted everybody to love me and want me, which we're not going to get, right? Never. I um, have found it tricky to find a home in a culture, and you mentioned this earlier to find a home in a culture that um, has a certain idea of what beautiful, desirable women should look like. Mm-hmm. And it's generally not a plus size woman. Right. I think acceptance of me physically was the doorway for me to accept myself in all the other ways. Is that true for you? I didn't know we were going to have this conversation, but I don't ever get to have this one with anybody.
1: Well, do you, I mean, I know I'm the one being interviewed here, but I'm just a question asker because I love people. But do you feel like you have? Do you feel like... You have fully accepted who you are, what you wear, how you wear it, what size it is, everything about you. Did that come in a certain accept- age or certain what, realization? What? Yeah,
2: I, I do think I am there, but let me tell you what creeps in. Here's what's coming. Once you do the work to do that, aging is a different thing. Ooh, yeah. Because it is limitation. Hmm. And it's limitation that's beyond your control. Ooh, I love that. So what, how have you dealt with that? Well, okay some days and poorly other days. And so because of what I learned from having a weight issue, I'm trying to be accepting from the get-go of the aging thing. And mm-hmm. I think that's what changes it, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah, I can't do as much as I could do. I, you know, for me as a two, I want to help everybody. I can't help as many people as I could help. I can't, there are just limitations. And I, I think that part of what I read between the lines in your work is that you don't take limitations too seriously. Mm-hmm. And you move beyond limitations without much fanfare since you turned 41.
1: Mm -hmm. I would say that's true. Also, I would say that what this new season of my life has brought has been such a joy that I had never known up until about 41. And this is coming from someone who had a beautiful marriage and, and a loving family, but it's such an internal joy that I have never known that aging is the least of my worries right now yeah it it is and and that's saying something because I have a ten year old and a twelve year old so people think that I'm younger than I am, but we mm-hmm. tried to have children for many, many years and couldn't, so I'm actually older than whenever people- people ask me how old I am, they go, oh, I would have never thought that well, that's too because I have you know you know I say carbs keep me looking young but <laughs> uh so I'm in my mid forties, and age is not a concern for me right now. Simply because I'm just so dadgum happy in, inside. Sure. Age is just the least of my worries. I've worried about my size and everything for so long. It's crippled me for so long that I, I don't know. Let's check back in here in, in seven years and maybe it'll be different for me. But right now this is just such a nice shift, such a nice change of pace. I'm sure. willing to take aging with it. If I can be sure. this happy. Now this came for me, this true shift. It did. I'm telling you, it doesn't just come because you blow out some candles and you make a wish. It doesn't just come because you cross your fingers real hard and hope for the best. There was some internal work that I had to do. The point was that I decided I was worth that internal work. There you go. I was worth the effort. Like, what if I do all of this work? What if I really learn what God has said about me? What if I took him at his word? What if he calls me certain things and I began to believe, you said just a minute ago, you know, his beloved. What if I took him at his word? And what if, oh gosh, what if I did and I found out I was just right for him? Like he right. liked, me. would I be okay with that? And so that's really kind of where the shift came for me. And I found out, you know what? He is wild about me. He never said I was too much. He created me to be this way. I'm actually quite entertaining to him. There you go. And I'm okay with it.
2: All right. You wrote uh, about self-worth. And the question I wrote that I wanted to ask you is, can you tell me one or two things that kept you from that self-worth and you've talked a lot about finding it Mm
0: -hmm.
2: like you, you are tied into, I found it now. What, what one or two things kept you from feeling worthy other than having been told you were too much.
1: One or two things other than that. Um, And you mean like literally like circumstantial things, maybe,
2: maybe, Or are stories that you told yourself about yourself that aren't true?
1: Um, Well, I'm going to tell you one of them, and I don't know if it will surprise you, or maybe you've talked to a lot of people, and this won't surprise you at all.
2: Not much surprises me. (laughs) Uh,
1: After 12 years of not being able to have children, after we we, we tried for 12 years. We had four miscarriages. Infertility does a number on a woman. There you go there's a number on a woman. So when you can't seem to, to ma- Nashville would probably be the other thing. I loved some, I loved a lot of the friends that I made in Nashville, but Nashville did a number on me. So Nashville, um, I, I could sing, I could sing with the best of them, but I didn't look the part. And so Nashville was cruel to me in a lot of ways and infertility. So what, what you have here is you have a perfect storm. You have a woman in a town that likes her, ah, uh, but isn't sure, isn't accepting of her. She's she's great, but if you just kind of, you know, blend into the back, Melissa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Same, mm-hmm. But let's not have anybody look at you, Melissa. So you've got that aspect, and then you go home to the safety of your home and your marriage, right? But then you can't perform as a woman. You can't do the one thing that all your girlfriends can do. And that does a number on you. So those two things really play a large part in this story of me. Um, Infertility did a a number on me. And then Nashville, to be honest, um, sometimes when I pull into Nashville now, there's a little bit of a a flicker of trauma that just kind of pops up and I feel it a little bit. And then it'll go away. It'll wash away when I'll see my girlfriends and we'll hug and we'll meet up for coffee or whatever. But there's a little bit there that still resides.
2: Okay. I'd love to talk about those two things separately because sevens reframe negatives into positives right away. Like they're really good at, it's okay. So what that might have looked like just to set the table for you, not to put words in your mouth is, uh, we didn't get pregnant this time, but we will next time. Like it's, it's that constant, but it's going to be okay. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be good.
1: Here's what Melissa Radke's reframing looks like.
2: Okay. That's what I want to hear.
1: It looks like this. Well, this is just part of the story. I can't wait to tell you how the end, there's going to be an ending and all of this will make sense then. It doesn't make sense now. And yeah, I want to kill myself and yet yeah, hurts like hell, but, but it's going to all make sense in the end. I just know it. So this is just part of the story. You know, this is one chapter out of many, one chapter out of many. That's what it looked like for me.
2: That's good. That's really good. And so then let's talk about what happened. You did get pregnant.
1: We would get pregnant and I, I couldn't hold on to the pregnancy. It seemed like every single time we would get pregnant, it would we would go in for that, uh, that very first one where we would listen to the heartbeat and the heartbeat would be faint or the heartbeat would be non-existent at this point. Or the, or the heart, it would be so faint that they would say, go home and something will probably unfortunately happen over the weekend. I mean, it was, it was terrible. This happened four different times. Um, and then one time we actually got pregnant and carried that through to about the seventh month. And then we're, we were told around month five that the baby did not look healthy, that something was wrong with the baby. Um, did we want to abort the baby? That wasn't something that we wanted to do. We wanted to pray for a miracle cause I'm a seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get a miracle. Right. Right. And so we didn't, um, go through with what they suggested and we delivered him on Christmas morning of 2005 in a, in a, um, room at Vanderbilt hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. And he lived for about an hour and a half. And, um, Yeah, so all of that does quite a number on you as who you are as a woman, how happy you can make your husband, how fulfilling, you know, I don't know. Does that make sense?
2: Makes total sense. I'm so sorry that that experience is part of your being in the world and that that is a desire that you weren't able to fulfill in the way that some other people do it. What I would like if we can get to it, because I think it'll help other women and men who are having trouble, I think there's nothing quite like a desire that is normal that you can't fulfill. Right. You know, sometimes we want things that only 1% of the population get. And so you don't get it and you don't get it. But in terms of that whole understanding of, I just want this, I just want this simple thing to be true for me. Mm -hmm. Sevens are so prone to reframing. Did you finally get so tired of reframing that you stopped that part of the journey to look at a different option? When did you start to look at adoption?
1: We were always open to adoption. We were never unopened, but we didn't go down that path because we just, we knew we, now it would take forever to get pregnant, but we knew we could, why couldn't my body just hold on? So we didn't feel like that adoption maybe was, here's what I hate. I I even hate saying this to you. We thought adoption would be our last resort. God, I hate that. Now both of my children are from adoption and I wouldn't change a thing. Sure. Um, but back then, that, that was what I had. That'll be our last resort, and we're very open to it, but we probably won't need to do it, right? right. right. So about three months after our son passed, we got a call from a friend of a friend of a friend, right, who, who knew our story and had met a birth mom who was looking for a family, and that's how it happened. It fell in our lap, and um, it, it had to have just been God because I was so hurt and so broken and so closed off. I, I probably wouldn't have pursued that for quite a while. And then I would have missed both of these beautiful children.
2: All right. I want to talk about that space right there, which is hard for sevens. So I know I'm asking a lot from you and you're very gracious, but I want to talk about that space where you were so broken and so hurt and so sad that you wouldn't have gone to look for a solution. It had to come to you Mm -hmm. because I think that space in sevens comes from an inability to grieve. Okay. but it sounds like you were grieving, 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 grieving. Why do you think you were not reframing? And what did your grieving look like?
1: Well, I do have a question before I answer that. I okay. want to ask, when you say that sevens have trouble grieving, first of all, mm-hmm. I 100% agree. Do you find that sevens therefore grieve in unhealthy ways? Yes. Or they just don't grieve at all. Yes. One okay. of the two. One of the So ten. which one fits you? Um, which one fits me during that time would be grieving in, in unhealthy ways. I didn't pick up alcohol. I didn't pick up drugs. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I slipped into a, a a type of depression that manifested itself in rage. And okay. that's just totally honest. I was angry. My grief came out in anger. Um, and I have actually noticed that a lot throughout my life. A lot. Um, in different seasons, depending on what I was dealing with. If I can't, if I can't contain it and it's gonna pour out, it's gonna pour out in anger and rage and hurt words. <laughs> Go there with me. Explain that because I can't figure it out. But I guess I what you're okay, we'll go for it. Well, I, I can offer, I can't explain <laughs> it, but I've got an offer. I, I want it. Give it to me. Well,
2: I, I think that pretty deep Enneagram language is that uh, you're in the fear triad, which means there's a lot that you're afraid of, mm-hmm. but you don't deal with that. You You have a way of ignoring what you're afraid of or of creating a smokescreen of activity so that you don't have to deal with what you're afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. And when all options fail, then anger's pretty handy. And for a seven, anger's better than being sad.
1: Yeah, I agree. And for a lot of sevens, where I know at least for me, my mouth is my go-to, right? It's my go-to to make people laugh, therefore it's my go-to to to cut them and to be, you know, my mouth is just, it's my weapon.
2: That's very interesting. So I'm going to ask Joel if he'll visit with us for a little bit, because you know, he's a seven Mm -hmm. and he doesn't deal with um, pain the same way and with grieving the same way.
0: Well, I, I'd never thought about this before, or I haven't thought about this in a long time, but uh, when you said that you dealt with the grief with anger and rage I, when I went through, I've been divorced and when I went through that divorce, when it initially, uh, and the separation, and all that, I'm the most nonviolent human being you'll find. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in those first couple months, I almost got into two bar fights. Mm. Just, just, I mean, Angry. Not, yeah. And not dealing. And I never, I know I was in a bad place, but I would never put the words, uh, inappropriately grieving like you just did. Mm. I, I like, I'm initially, I was like, I'm in the, I don't grieve at all camp. Right. I just completely moved past it. But in that time I was in the inappropriately grieving camp and I've never put that together till just now.
1: Wow. Yeah. yeah honestly, and he, I, I would have been the bar fight girl if I had just, you know, gone to a bar. No doubt I would. I'm, I'm telling you, I annihilated people. He just did it with his body. He just did it physically. I just did it with my mouth. I, I don't that's know. very,
2: very interesting. So, just so you know, Melissa, in our body of work, we've done an awful lot of talk about grieving. And of course, we do a lot of talk about sevens. And this is all new material. So, I'm going to thank you right now because we're going to take it and run with it.
1: <laughs> so, you're going to hear it coming back at you. Yeah. Well, good. Well, that's okay. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Actually, Joel just made me feel much less alone. So, um, I, it just—it just felt like during that time that grief was this ill-fitting suit. It didn't—it didn't fit me well. It drugged me down. It, and I wanted it off. And we don't know how to. – do don't know how to sit in that, right? So oh my we gosh, just, yeah, we just fight until we can get it off of us. Y'all keep talking.
2: I'm taking notes, actually. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, the only thing I really have to reiterate is because I always thought I just ignored it yeah, and moved on kind of like with the aspect with like you said of this is part of my story now, you know, people, so with divorce, people get divorced right? and I've grown and now I've grown from this and the lessons that I've learned, like I thought that was reframed and while mm-hmm. I'm reframing and saying that to myself at home, I'm almost getting into a bar fight, which is not me. That's like I said, it's ill-fitting. That's not... That's not who you oh are. Gosh, I, that's not me.
1: Right. I can remember amidst, um, this was before our son passed. I think it was around miscarriage. Number three, God knows you just lose track up after a point, but w- w- my husband and I went through a really difficult time. In our, our marriage, I wrote about it openly in my book. He ended up having an emotional affair with my very best friend. I can remember um, one particular night I was walking up the steps to go to our guest bedroom to sleep up there, which we had never at this time ever even slept in different rooms. I was on about the third step. I can remember turning my body around on that third step and sailing off of it full force landing on him, trying to just beat him to death with my bare hands. You can't think of it. I mean, I am not even by nature, a confrontational person, mm-hmm. you know? I'm the cheerleader. I'm the, come on everybody. And I am, my body is sailing off. It was so out of such an out of body experience for me, but that is just. That, well, it's, it, it,
2: it, so would y'all both say it's about, you said it really well, an ill fitting suit. How do I sit in that? And it sounds to me like uh, another way of saying it, you correct me if I'm wrong, is I can't hold this. Mm. This kind of grief I cannot hold.
1: It reminds me of the movie Big when Tom Hanks is all of a sudden he wakes up as, as a little boy and he's wearing that suit that just the legs of it are hang down the arms and he can't he's having to hold his pants up. And that's how I felt. It's an ill-fitting suit. It's like someone put it on me and it was never meant to be mine. And so then I, I go to counselors or therapists, whatever, right? And they say, but you need to learn to sit in that. Well, try to tell a seven to sit in that. We don't know how to sit in that. So what would it have been helpful for you to hear? Well, first of all, I wish that people would stop telling sevens how to sit in their, in their trauma and how to sit in their pain and how to sit in their feelings. Uh, the last thing a seven wants to do is sit anywhere. They want to dance around the room. I do. I do. I want to be on the stage and perform for you. I'll just perform through my grief like that's going to help anybody. But So quit telling us how to sit still in it and tell us what does that look like? What does that mean for us? Like I never, I like people to break it down. So when you, if you wanted to tell a seven how to properly grieve, tell me how to do that. I really don't know. Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, One thing is, I think you have to feel dark feelings in real time. Mm -hmm. The little ones that come through the day. You know, my way of talking about it has to do with the fact that you can't, in a tragedy or in a traumatic situation, you cannot do something that you've never practiced. So what works for you and Joel for all of life up to a point of great pain is that you've been able to reframe every negative into a positive. Mm -hmm. Right? So for the rest of us who can't do that, we learned grieving and loss in incremental steps. Secondly, three sevens and eights really kind of think they can shape the world the way they want it to be mm-hmm. instead of accepting it the way it is, right? Well, the rest of us don't think that. So we've not believed along the journey that if something came along and we didn't like it, we would just reshape it and have it be what we want it to be instead. And even when you all can only do that in your heads, you're fairly satisfied with that, except of course with a loss that's this significant. So I think uh, we expect people, sevens, to do things they haven't practiced. And so when you say sit in it, you've never had to do that. You know, Joel said just the other day, if you send a seven child to their room, they're as happy as they can be.
1: That's so true, Joel. That's so true. And I can remember going to my counselor during this time. And he said, Melissa, there is nothing wrong with looking. I remember I was um, a Sunday school teacher. So I was of a a young married couples class during this time. And so I would be the one responsible for throwing all the baby showers. Right. And that's like the last thing wanted to do. And he said, so here's what, and I said, so what do I do? And he said, here's what you do. You look and you say, I'm not going to be able to tend your baby shower today because although I'm very happy for you, I am very sad for me. There you go. And then you go home and you get in the bed and you lay in the bed and you don't, you don't. And I was like, lay in the bed. Are you kidding? People will think I'm losing my, and he said, Hey, when you've been in the bed on about day five, call me, then we probably have some work to do. But if you want to lay in that bed for 48 hours and just grieve, you do it and you speak the truth, which is I am very happy for you, but I'm also really sad for me. And I just thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard in my life. Like we're not supposed to say that, you know, such good advice, though, such good advice.
0: I think a big part of it, too, is part of our stance with always moving forward, Mm -hmm. even if not even looking at it as a grieving. But just going, like I said, going to your bed and not, not going, not doing, not looking to the future, but just stop. Mm-hmm. And who knows, who knows what will happen when we just stop because we don't do it.
2: Right. That's exactly right. Just be present in this moment right now.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm trying, I'm, I'm telling you, the older I get, the, the more I really try to do that. And I'm trying to raise children that do that. And it's absurd when a seven is trying to teach a three or teach a two or, you know, I'm not even quite sure what, but I think I know what one of them is for sure. But, um, and yet I'm trying to teach our children that it's okay to feel these
0: feelings. I'm the best human being when I'm talking to my children. I'm. I've never been more well-rounded. If people <laughs> saw me when I'm talking to my four kids, they would think that guy has the whole puzzle figured out. <laughs> and but then it's hard for me to just do it myself.
1: Okay. So okay, Suzanne, Can't tell try. me that is do what? Yeah. I mean, Suzanne. Okay. Yeah. Tell me, is that? a seven thing or a Joel thing or because I totally identify with what he just said. Like when it comes to sitting down with my kids and talking to them, I am killing it. Right. I'm like, Oh, I got it figured out. I'm a, I am rearing these kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord and I'm a mess behind my own door. <laughs> you know, like, is that a, is a seven that, thing?
2: Okay. It's a seven thing, but here's why. Because most of the time when your children really need to learn a lesson from you, they need it to be logical, not emotional.
1: Oh, yeah. And,
2: and they need to be logical and hopeful and non-punitive in that. That all comes later, generally. Now, I don't think all seven parents do that. Joel does it. Sounds to me like you do
0: it. Well, my question or my thought is the only reason why I know to tell my children it's okay to feel your feelings in this. It's not because I want to share their feelings with them or want to sit in that. It's because I've recognized that in myself and don't want them to have that same problem and a struggle that I have. So I say, hey, feel your feelings. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to do this, even though I don't practice it because that's not the way I see the world.
2: But what, yes. Is that true for you, Melissa? Oh, absolutely. For sure. Mm -hmm. And see, what I'm saying is the non-seven in the room is that I can say it's okay to feel your feelings, but they also have to feel mine (laughs) because I say it with emotions. Like my emotions come to the table too, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that's so good. That's so good.
2: All right. I want to talk about those two adopted kids a little bit. Did you know that I'm adopted? Yeah. (sighs) Adopted at birth. Oh, wonderful. So tell me uh, about the kids. And about parenting for you guys. And uh, then I want to ask a few questions around that.
1: Well, our kids are lovely and they are our whole entire life. And we adore them and they're spoiled. And um, uh, my son Rocco is 10. I was in the room when Rocco was born. I cut the cord on Rocco. Yeah, he's been mine since the, the very beginning. Remy Hope is 12. And she, I swear, if she's not a seven- I'm going I'm, to, I will eat my hair because I'm telling you that kid is a seven. I, when it comes to the nature versus nurture argument, there is no argument. It is nurture in our house because it's like I spit her out of my mouth. Um, she's quick witted and she's sarcastic and we're teaching her the line of what's funny and what's disrespectful, which is a line I often had trouble walking <laughs> growing up. Um, she is smart. Aren't and
0: truly really exclusive.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Good to know. Good to know. She's smart and um, type A a little bit, and really funny. And he is tender and kind. And they really together, they would just be the perfect human, I think. But um, we we cherish our kids. Um, we're heck, we just started. You know, our our we have a reality show coming out. Comes out June. Right. Of- Let's talk about that. Well, you're going to see those kids on there a lot. So if you thought like, my parenting, maybe you're going to watch it and be like, I don't know why she raved about her parenting. It is terrible. <laughs> you probably will. But um,
2: Here's so what that- I'm probably going to do. I'm probably going to say, those of you who are sevens, if you mm-hmm. want to watch some seven parenting, good and bad, here's where you go to see it.
1: That's exactly right. But, you know, we we told our children that, that we... Adoption has never been a secret in our house. Right. Um, yeah. We, we've told them since they were old enough to watch the Disney animated Tarzan. And the gorilla went into the room. Remember the room had been destroyed and there laid Tarzan in the little bassinet and the gorilla put him on her back and she took him home. And from that, so that young of an age, we would say, now, do you know what she's doing with Tarzan? They would be like, stealing him? No, they're adopting <laughs> him. Um, we would talk openly about that. We refer to their biological mothers by, you know, we call them Miss Blank and I don't want to say their names, but, um, but the kids do, they know their names and they've never met them or seen them. And that's not something that's even been asked of us yet. Um, but we talk about them with great respect around our home and I want, I want our kids. That was just the path we chose for us.
2: I like that path. That's Mm -hmm. a good one. So um if I ask you what do you want to give to the world with your writing and what do you want to offer to the world with your new reality show that's coming June 4th is that right
1: June
2: 4th yes ma'am Tuesday. June 4th and it's on uh USA network
1: USA network
2: all right uh, and so you seem to me to be a person who when you put it out there you're whatever it is, you're doing it this way. It's just an offering. I'm offering you this. Mm -hmm. And if people get it great. And if they don't, it doesn't seem that you're too tied to that. Is that correct?
1: Right. I would agree. Mm -hmm. All right. So I want you to talk about the offering. Yeah. It's funny that you say I'm not too tied to this because people are already asking us, will there be a season two to which I say, I don't know, (laughs) but if there's not, I'm going to do something else, you know? Sure you never know if you're going to get a season two until they see how season one goes. And a lot of people would just be sitting by, right? Just like (laughs) biting their, biting their nails and scared to death. And I'm like, Hey, if it don't pan out, what's the next great thing? I mean, I'm just open to it. Um, so I said all that to say, I I'm going to answer your question and I'm, I'm hesitant to answer it because I have been asked this question before by my husband you literally just asked me a question that no one in the world has ever asked me about my husband. When my career started changing and I started writing and I started doing social media stuff and I started doing the show, he said, what is it, what is it you want to do, Melissa? What is it you're offering the world, right? And I felt shallow. I just want to make the world happy. I just want to make them laugh. I want to entertain them. And that feels shallow to me. Because I have some friends that are like, "Well, I want to go and dig water wells, or I want to go here and feed poor children or i want to i want to be a pastor and preach to the law I just want to make people happy. I want everybody to have a good time and get along. That's what I want. I did decide I did read this quote somewhere, and I decided it was for me. I don't necessarily want to be a popular person, I want to be an influential one and i and i I mean that, but do I sound shallow by saying?" I just want everybody to have a good time. And I feel like if people can trust me and that they laugh around me, then they, and they want to be friends with me, then I got an inroad that not a lot of other people will have. Sure. Sure. So, and here's what I think.
2: I I think we all are suited to hear different calls on our lives. And I think it will be great. wisdom for people to learn that you can have this journey in life that comes with pain and rejection and great loss and be happy. But you're happy in the context of the rejection and the great loss, not because you're going around it right, or over it or under it. One of the things that I have found in my hour with you, I would walk away saying, I I felt a lot of joy while we were doing that. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And in terms of Enneagram wisdom, one of the things that I think sevens have to offer that is different from what the other folks in the world are offering. And that is the difference in happiness and joy. Mm
1: -hmm. You can't,
2: you can't make your own happiness You can receive joy. Mm -hmm. And I find sevens to be more joyful than happy. Mm -hmm. So anytime you think you're being shallow, I would say, no, no, no. Feels like the deep end of the swimming pool to me Mm -hmm. where happiness becomes joy in the context and reality of everything that's happening in your life. Good, bad, hard, easy, wonderful struggle, all of it. And I think we all need a good dose of that.
1: Well, I think that one of the, one of my favorite things that I hear is one of the nicest compliments somebody can give me. And I hear it quite a lot. And that is you, you immediately feel like a friend, like I've known you forever, Melissa, like you're a best friend. That's high praise. And then people say, they also say, after I've spent time with you, I just, or I've watched your videos or I read your book. I feel less alone. And I just don't, I don't think that's shallow work. You know, I say it around some people and they're like, oh, so you just want to entertain people and make them joyful. Oh, great. Well, I don't think that's shallow work. I think I, I want to leave someone's presence and them feel less alone. They felt heard. They they enjoyed that moment. I mean, I, I don't want to be the I don't know. I don't I don't want to be the heavy. <laughs> I want to be light. I want to be fun. Do do you think that all of
2: that though, all of that, that you want to be the question of shallowness has to do with where does that come from in you Mm -hmm. and what you're offering comes from a deep place in you, not from a shallow place. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I have one more thing that I I want to talk about with you. And that is, uh, you know, I teach that sevens have a half range of emotions that they feel the happy half. And they kind of like to live life in the happy half. And when something really sad happens, they kind of dip over here and deal with it, but they pop right back up and get back over here where things are a little more joy-filled and Mm -hmm. happier, positive emotions. What I would like to know is over here on this other side, what did the struggle to conceive and loss, and rejection in terms of your Nashville experience. What did that teach you?
1: That's surprisingly easy for me to answer, but I hope that you don't think it's a trite answer. And I don't even know why I worry so much about whether you think it's a trite answer, but, or anyone listening thinks it's a trite answer. But those things, I think, play up. You said you said at the very beginning of this time, list five things about you, Melissa. And mm-hmm. one of the, there's a million things. I, I'm a seven. I could talk about myself all day long. Listing five was hard. Um, but one of the things that I listed was that I'm a person of great faith. And I think I listed that because of those situations. I think I listed that I'm a person of great faith because of what has happened to me. Because this here's what it taught me. This is not true of everybody. Everybody has a different faith and a different belief system. Okay, I get that. But for me, I am not alone in this. Whatever the heartache is, whatever the rage is, whatever the moments of anger or the grief that I have to sit in, whatever the most joy filled moments are or entertaining when laughter is hysterical or tears are immense, I am never alone in it. And For me, that is so reassuring to know that if my marriage ends or my children grow up and move away, if my parents die and I am still not alone, there is something greater with me. And that is what it has taught me. So I don't have to be scared of reality TV or a book number two. I don't have to be scared of what I'm putting on the internet or what I'm not. I don't have to be scared if I'm going to lay in the bed for three days because I'm hitting a low point and I can't get out. I'm not by myself. And that was a great, great lesson for me. Seven or not, that was, it was profound for me. I don't have to walk through this alone.
2: One of the things that I often teach is that I think everybody that I've ever met wants at least these two things. I think everybody wants to belong. And I think everybody wants their life to have meaning. It seems to me when we look back over our conversation together. You will in fact be sharing your journey toward belonging and the ways that you're trying to give meaning to your life and your life's experience. You, you're you a delight for me. And I really, really enjoyed our time together. And I know you got a lot going on. Thank you for spending some time with us.
1: Well, I think you are um, really so full of wisdom. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying, I'm, I'm going to get off this podcast. I'm going to walk in the other room. My husband, my husband's going to say, how'd it go? And I'm going to say, I could have talked to her for another hour. I love you and Joel. I love the work you're doing. I really would talk to you another time because I want to figure out, I, I like figuring this out. I like knowing me. I hate, I had to wait till 41 to get to know me because I like me so much, you know, yeah. So, I hate I had to wait so long, but it's just been a pleasure doing this with you, and I'm here anytime you guys need. You. you and I would be a lot, Joel. So, it's best that you stay there.
0: Okay? No, I was thinking next time you're in Dallas, you need to let us know. Because, uh...